Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. I remember a date that you guys might remember as well. It's a day that will live in infamy, September 22nd, 1994. I can remember exactly where I was at. I was at home, sitting on my bed, trying to get homework done my senior year of high school. And then I saw it come across my TV. It was something that was so shocking, so revolutionary, that it would change the way America and the world thinks forever. We got introduced to some special people. I'm going to say their names for you and see if you recognize them. Joey, Chandler, Ross, <laughs> Rachel, Phoebe, and what was the other one? Who did I leave? Oh, I just checking to see. That's Monica. Yeah. <laughs> just see how many people would yell that out. <laughs> Friends. That was the name of the show. Friends. It was originally not titled Friends. It had some really weird titles. It was called 601 at one point, and Insomnia Cafe was another one. And they said, no, let's just go with what the show's about. Let's just call it Friends. And Friends began to revolutionize the world. In fact, it was such a phenomenon that it would go on for 10 years as the most successful show on TV for pretty much all of its duration. Since its debut, it has earned more than nearly $1 billion in syndication revenue. In 2018, Netflix briefly ran the series and it got 54.3 million hours of views. So to put that in a timeline, what 54.3 million is, it's 62,000 years of viewings, if you lined it up. 62,000 years this show was watched by our, our country and worldwide. They did a recent survey where they took 2,000 random adults ranging in age from 20 to 60 and they gave them the 35 most popular television programs over the last 40 years. And they had them rank them from 1 to 35. Friends won overwhelmingly with 43% of the votes saying that it was the best show of all time. Some of you are shaking your head. You're like, not even close. <laughs> but for a lot of people, <laughs> Ross hasn't even watched it. So, And despite he's named after one of the characters. So, yeah, so, yeah, so 43% of people thought it was the greatest show of all the times. To me, I enjoyed it. It spoke to me. I was a senior in high school. I was getting ready to leave my friends. I was getting ready to duck out of a group of people that I had grown up with and gone to school with, some of which I was gone to school with since grade school, mm -hmm. and knew that we were all going to go different ways, and some would go to college, and some would go out of state, and some I would never see again, and so it kind of spoke to me. Here was a group of friends that mm -hmm. could get any problem solved in a half hour, <laughs> where you could work as a coffee barista and afford the greatest apartment in New York, you know, it was just one of those really fun, easy to watch shows that kind of made you feel good. A lot of people saw the show as an escape. And, and I looked at some interviews that people had done with some fans that grew up and now were adults. And mm -hmm. one super fan wrote that she had watched the show from the time she was in high school, just like me, to the time she went to college, to the time she had her first child and used it as a way to relate to the friends that she didn't have during that time period. Having friends, she said, having friends that are closer than family, that can work out their differences and seem like they're going to stay together forever is just something that's appealing to me. Friendship. Friends. This is the time of year, and this isn't by happenstance I chose this subject. This is the time of year where we hear the three Fs, friends, family, and fun. 
we talk about it for parties and get-togethers, and you see it on TV shows and Hallmark classics and all of those things. <laughs> Friends, family, and fun. And I thought maybe this is a time where we can really go back and re-examine friendship. Because as big as it got and as popular as it was, Friends didn't come up with the concept of friends. That was done way back in the very beginning of the Bible. God established in the very beginning that it is not good that man be alone. In Genesis 2.18, God sees a perfect world that he created with one exception. The Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, we really have to look at those words that are put in there. The word alone that he says, it's not good for man to be alone, it's actually translated from a Hebrew word, badar. And badar means to be separated or isolated from. Now that's big, because God is looking down and, and realizes the chasm between his omnipotence and the thinking of man. Now, he, could he have helped Adam? Absolutely. He could have assisted to it. You know, Adam, I'll help you take care of this. I'll help you take care of that. But there was going to be an isolation there was going to be a void set forth that God said, no, I have got to take care of this. So God said, I will make a man a suitable helper. Now, the very, very base understanding of this is spouse, but the actual translation, um, a suitable helper means somebody that's similar or like-minded. And of course, this is in the context of understanding that God's establishing the foundations of man and woman and marriage and, and uh, God-approved relationships, which is what it is. But it also goes beyond that. He's also establishing the foundations of what a relationship be, excuse me, relationship should be itself. And that goes into what friendship is. A friend is a suitable helper. And that helper can be done in all kinds of different ways. But it is a necessity to have friends. Now, some of you are saying, bah humbug, I don't need friends. <laughs> friends are just problems. Friends mean I have to do things. Friends mean I have to... Go places I don't want to go. Take phone calls I don't want to take in the middle of the night. More responsibility. More things to keep up with. I don't need them on there. So you know me. I like to bring a little science into everything. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that first tonight. Friendships might seem like a, kind of like a worn concept. You know, have a lot of friends. It's nice. Might seem like little things that you can add to your daily life to make your life better, make your routine better. Psychology and science have a different take on friendship. So I, I looked up a couple of things that might help us to understand the actual physical benefits of having friends. There's a psychologist uh, specializing in friendship. Her name is Dr. Miriam Kermeyer, and she writes, um, there's a time for us to stop seeing our friendships as a luxury and instead recognize them for what they really are. They're a powerful way for us to invest in our well-being, community, and growth. So I thought, well-being, let's take that word and let's put it into a medical sense for this. So I got this from the Mayo Clinic. Friends prevent isolation and loneliness and give you a chance to offer needed companionship too. Friends can also increase your sense of belonging and purpose, boost your happiness and reduce your stress, improve your self-confidence and self-worth, help you cope with trauma such as divorce, serious illness, job loss, or death of a loved one, Encourage you to change or avoid unhealthy lifestyle habits such as excessive drinking or lack of exercise. Friends also play a significant role in promoting your overall health. Adults with strong social connections have a reduced risk of many significant health problems, including depression, high blood pressure, and an unhealthy body mass index. 
In fact, studies have found that older adults who have meaningful relationships and social support are likely to live longer than their peers with fewer connections, sometimes as much as 22% longer. That is huge. Live almost a quarter longer than most people's lifespans by having friends. Brian mentioned it earlier, but we're doing this program, uh, some of them in here called New 90, and it's a program that Matt came up with has really been life-changing for me. And a lot of us here have leaned on the support of our friends to get us through it. And I will say because of the support of my friends, in less than three months, I've been able to lose 55 pounds. So this science is real. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And it's also from God, which we're going to talk about tonight. But having that friendship for me, having that accountability, having the support of my wife and my kids, but also my peers, my friends, the people that are looking out for my back and not wanting to let them down, wanting to be there for them, wanting to be a good example for them, spurred me on to want to do more that I got to be honest was probably dead in me before this whole program happened. But because of friendship, my life's changing for the better. And because of friendship, I'm reaching closer to God. Because of friendship, I'm finding new opportunities to reach out to other people that might be struggling with the same thing that I am. And that is a benefit of the relationship. Now, there is an emotional toll with not having friends or having friends that are not good for you. And I want to bring in that science as well. Dr. Lydia Dinworth from Berkeley wrote, researchers had a scale of one to five. How positive does this relationship make you feel? They had to relate all, they had to rate all the relationships in their lives from their friends on a scale of one to five. And how negative does this relationship make you feel? Anybody who has a two or above on both things was counted as ambivalent. This is a friend that really just doesn't care. What was interesting was that any relationship that was categorized as ambivalent seemed to generate cardiovascular issues and other kind of health problems to the person as they were taking the exam. Blood pressure would spike, heart rate would go faster when they talked about the friends that didn't really care about them or may have been a problem. So bad friendships can also have the same effect on your health, except in the reverse. It can bring you into a bad position. So we don't want those. <laughs> we want to avoid those out of our lives. We want to talk about healthy relationships tonight and look at a few examples in the Bible of what those are. So what constitutes a healthy relationship? What should it look like? What should it feel like? How long should it last? How deep should it go? But my last question is, what does it require? There's a shirt that uh, was really popular, um, I would say about five years ago, for people who are Friends fans that just had their names on the shirt. And you guys probably always saw, saw those because everybody had them around all over the place. But nobody wears the shirts with the really true friends that count on there. Jonathan, David, Jesus and Lazarus, Naomi and Ruth, Paul and Timothy. So if you wore that shirt and people were like, oh, a bunch of people from the Bible? Is that what the theme is? <laughs> friends. Friends from the beginning. Before this show that took over the world ever existed, we had the true example of what friendship should be. So let's go for these four key components here. For number one, friendship focuses on loyalty. So out of those group of people that I mentioned, who do you think would cover the loyalty? Well, you can probably say just about everybody in there. But there's one I really wanna focus on and that is Jonathan and David. 
So Saul was appointed as the first king of Israel, and I put first in quotes because they already had a king. That was Jesus. <laughs> they didn't need a king. But because they wanted a king so bad, they said, let's be like all the other nations around us and let's get Saul as our king. So when Saul took over, a lot of people don't remember, but Saul was kind of a good guy. He was really nervous. He was scared. He didn't know what to do. And then he started looking around at all these other nations and how they rule their people, and it started to seep into his head, and he started to get more controlling, and the iron fist came out, and he wanted to keep his people under his wraps. So after that happened, he had a fight with the Philistines, and we all know that story with David and Goliath. Young shepherd was chosen that was really going to be the chosen king of Israel, and he was going to defeat Goliath and come into favor with Saul. And David was just a shepherd, but God had chose him to be his one true king that was going to come on and take over Israel and bring them back to God. And Jonathan is going to see this play out in real life. So David fights and defeats the rival Philistine, finding favor in the eyes of Israel. And we go into scripture in Samuel, the 18th chapter here, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Jonathan believed in David based on who he was and what he did. That is how their friendship started. He saw David as a righteous man doing the things the right way, and Jonathan was immediately attracted to that as a kindred spirit. Now, it might not seem like a big deal for him to take off his robe and his tunic, but if you really understand what Jonathan was doing here, Jonathan was taking off his birthright as the prince, the next to the throne, and giving it to David, saying, you're the one that needs to take over. I support you. That was huge. This is Jonathan giving up his heir to the throne, his right to riches, his right to power, his right to have his name spoken throughout the land so that David, a shepherd, could take over as a king. Jonathan and David become brothers in the truest sense of the word, and that happens through their friendship. Saul becomes jealous of David's success, and so he starts to plot to kill him. But because of his commitment to David, Jonathan acts as the stop-all for Saul and his evil against David. He decides that he is going to take this on and he is going to be personally responsible for David making it to that throne, even going against his father. Jonathan pleads with his father, fights with him, protests with him, but he eventually realizes that he must sacrifice his, sacrifice his own love of David and send him into hiding. Can you imagine what it would take to not only give up your throne, but turn against your very father through all of this? Now, some of us say blood is thicker than water. It's an old expression that we have. Relatives come first, and then your friends. But David saw this as something completely different. He saw this as a spiritual brother. He was blood to him, righteous blood. And Jonathan said, I am going to take care of this man. So what happens is Saul plots to kill David. Jonathan runs and warns David this is going to happen. And in one of the most heart-wrenching things in the Bible, they have to separate. 
never see each other ever again. Jonathan runs to David and, and he comes up with the scheme. If I know that Saul's going to come kill you, I'm going to do this thing with the arrows. And if you see that happens, you'll know he's coming. That's all code words to tell David you need to run and hide. So they finally get some time alone here right at the end. In 1 Samuel 20, 41, uh, uh, Jonathan sends away his, his servant, this boy that's with him, to take his arrows and run away. And now he's alone with David. So David got up from the south side of the stone and he bowed down before Jonathan three times. This is the king that Jonathan is declaring is going to be the king now bowing down before Jonathan. And he bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And they kissed each other and they wept together. But David wept the most. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. And that was the end of Jonathan and David. Do you think for one day, out of everything that happened to David after that that we read in Scripture, that he did not think about Jonathan and his sacrifice? Do you think for one day that Jonathan didn't keep David in his heart through loyalty until he finally died? But it's because of one very special thing. What does he say in here? It's in the name of the Lord. I'm loyal to you because God gave you to me. I'm serving God by being your friend. I'm serving God by keeping this bond together. There's a really good commentary that I found from Matthew Henry. I really like this. He said, the friendship of David and Jonathan was the effect of divine grace, which produces in true believers one heart, one soul, and causes them to love each other. This union of souls is from partaking in the spirit of Christ, where God unites hearts and carnal matters are too weak to separate them. Those who love Christ as their own souls will be willing to join themselves to him in an everlasting covenant. It was certainly a great proof of the power of God's grace in David that he was able to bear all this respect and honor without being lifted above measure. I love that. Divine grace of God that they were brought together. That loyalty that God has for us manifested between friendships here on earth. Loyalty. But, but friendships are just casual. I mean, they just happen and they come and go out of our lives. That's true. But there's a much different aspect of friends and divine friendships from God. Where you live and die to serve your Lord and Savior. You live and die to serve your master. That's a loyalty far beyond a bunch of likes on Facebook where you say, look at all the friends I got. A bunch of followers on Instagram to say, oh, I got a lot of friends. Nope. It's the one that's standing beside you when your soul's at stake. Or when you're falling, that, that reaches down with their hand and picks it up even though their very father might take their life for doing so. That is loyalty. So the next one I have here, I, I had to put these in order somehow, and there's no particular order, but like, man, if we're talking about loyalty of David and Jonathan, we have to just dovetail that into love. <laughs> so the next one is Jesus and Lazarus. And if there's not a better example of love in the Bible between friends, I don't know what it is. You might say Jonathan, David. Yeah, that's a great one. 
But this is our Lord and Savior picking out somebody that he is so devoted to and so loved with that when this very person dies, he weeps. And we're going to talk about this for a second. So not a lot of them is known about the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. We know that they've met each other. It was a place to stay. Um, we know that Lazarus is a man of integrity. He was probably providing a home for Martha and Mary at the time. Um, we know Lazarus was respected in his community, which is probably one of the reasons why Christ wanted to pick him as a person to show his miracle by raising him from the dead. And Lazarus, this is a, a guy who's well-respected, coming back from the dead, show the greatness of Christ. But when Lazarus falls sick and Jesus finds out, and his apostles tell him, hey, Lazarus is about to die, maybe we should go. Jesus waits two days, and he does that specifically. And that is because he wants to show the world a miracle with his, one of his closest friends here. Now, in, under, in order to understand the true depth of the scripture, we got to go back to a little bit of context. So looking at the New Testament and putting it into the Greek, um, the Greeks have six words for love. We've all heard those before. There's, you know, Philo and Eros and Agape and all, and all the words. We've heard those before. But there's an actual change in the scripture if you look at the Greek and the kinds of love that are put in this. So the Greeks, they talk about friendship love a lot, philo. So, you know, you guys have heard of Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. Mm -hmm. He was so enamored with philo love, this deep friendship love, that almost a fourth of his teachings had to do with it. It was a big deal for the Greeks, that philo love. Philo means friendship or brotherly love, which we all know the city of Philadelphia is derived from that word philo on there. So that is a deep friendship love for one another. But then we get into another word, and that is agape. And we're going to see that happen in scripture. So when Jesus says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus is asleep when they find out he's dead, he indeed uses the word phylos for friends. He's telling his apostles, your friend, my friend, Lazarus has died. We love him. We need to return. And when, Jesus, and when the Jews see Jesus weeping for him when he returns to his grave and sees that stone rolled away and calls forth Lazarus, Right before that happens, Jesus cries when he sees the emotion of Martha and Mary, cries for the death of his friend. And when that happens in there and everybody looks at Jesus, they say, look at how much he loved his friend here. That definition is agape love. That is love that is sacrificial. Jesus would have died for this friend. Now, would Jesus have died for his apostles and his disciples? Of course he would have. But this was something so personal to Jesus that the only time in Scripture that we hear him weep is in this. His death could not separate Jesus from his friend. And the instant that Jesus does cry, he has one of his most human moments ever. This is him feeling the loss of love for a friend that he has. A love so strong that not even death can hold its boundaries. When we talk about that agape love, that sacrificial love, it has to be genuine or it can't be agape love. It has to come from a place that's beyond our thought of a friendship and come from someplace that's deeper rooted through that. Jesus' love for us on the cross was not a philo love of friends. It was an agape love of I will sacrifice myself for them. That's a deeper love than sometimes we have with any friendship we'll ever have in our life. But that is a love that God wanted to promote to show that through his son, Jesus Christ. So we have our loyalty, Jonathan and David. 
We have our love through Jesus and Lazarus. And now we have to move on to our next one here, which is investment. That might not be one you guys ever think about with friendship, but friendships don't just happen and bloom and blossom and grow on their own. There has to be some investment involved. So many of you know the story of Ruth and Naomi on that, but I'll just give you a brief overview. Naomi moves with her um, husband, Imelech, to Moab because there's a famine and she needs to move away from home. And in that time, her husband, El um, excuse me, Elimelech dies and her two sons, and it leaves her with her two daughter-in-laws. So that is Ruth and her other sister-in-law, Orpah, for that. Now what happens is Naomi decides we're going to return back to Bethlehem because things have gotten better. God is shining his light on everybody. The famine is going away. There's now grain to sow and to eat, so let's go together. Now Naomi's going to do something amazing here. She is going to release her daughter-in-laws back into their own lives. So when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, sorry, and this is Ruth 1, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. Two amazing things happen here. Naomi released them to a life that could still exist for them, while at the same time saying, I'm going to step away from my companionship from you and suffer the loneliness so that you guys can succeed in life. And they did something equally amazing and said, no, we belong to you. We are going to sacrifice our chance at the life that we wanted to make sure that we can stay with you. But Naomi said, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Naomi throwing a little comedy here. Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait around till they grow up? Again, Naomi's on a roll here. Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And this is Naomi now getting real. My life is over. I lost my husband. I'm too old to go on. You guys salvage what you have left in your life. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you, to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I love it. At the end, Orpah puts up a fight, but at the end, Orpah's like, okay, I got it. I'm out. So she leaves. But Ruth's like, nope, I am staying here no matter what. My life is going to be with you. I'm investing everything I have in this relationship, in this friendship. Now, you have to realize at this time in Jewish culture, once the sons were gone, there was no bonds or ties left. They were free to go. In fact, on no other level outside of friendship was there any kind of bond between them. 
But Ruth is saying, no, I'm going to stay with you in this relationship. I'm going to be with you. Now, I want you guys to think about your mother-in-laws for a second <laughs> that you have. Is this a commitment that you would have made for that? Some of you may love your mother-in-laws like me <laughs> that I do. By the way, my mother-in-law's name is Ruth. <laughs> so I will put that. And her older sister's name is Naomi. <laughs> so maybe I have a little, uh, little bit uh, invested in this. But would you be willing to give up everything you had to follow what they want? Would you be willing to give up all your hopes and dreams and future of husband and family to follow your mother-in-law? Maybe you don't have a mother-in-law. Maybe it's an uncle or an aunt. Would you be willing to give all of that up to follow them? If you are, good on you. You have a loyalty most people don't have. And that's not what Naomi's asking here. Ruth is deciding to do this. But what Ruth is saying is, I'm going to be loyal to you no matter what. And that is where the investment through God is. She's telling Naomi that she's willing to sacrifice her future happiness, her own wants and desires to continue her agape friendship with Naomi. This investment will be rewarded by God as Ruth is noticed while she's out in the field getting grain by a very rich landowner named Boaz who falls in love with her, marries her, showers her with a better life, and the investment is paid back. Now, is that why we invest in a friendship so that we can get something back? Nope. We invest in a friendship because we see the examples given in the Bible of how God sees that and views that. We invest in a friendship because we have to give back to God's people. We have to give back to the friends that give back to us. And when we invest, God recognizes that and God sees that. So if I go out and get 15 friends, God's going to give me a better life and a better job and a better home? Nope. He's going to give you 15 friends. And let me tell you, that's better. That's the better investment. If I go out and give my heart and soul to three people in there, they're going to make sure that when my times are bad, that they'll come and take care of me? Yep, they sure will. If they're true friends, and if you have God between them, that's where the investment is. So we have our loyalty, we have our love, and we have our investment. So let's look at our next one here. Friendship focuses on God. Love, loyalty, investment in God. And I have to finish with Paul and Timothy. I'm fascinated with the relationship with Paul and Timothy. Paul, for all accounts, was not married. He does say in scripture, I wish you would remain as myself unmarried, meaning he, I wish you could just go do the things you need to do to serve God without the ties of relationships behind. So we know he wasn't married at that time. But when he meets Timothy, it becomes a father and son relationship with that friendship going above and beyond the normal friendship that you would see out there. Paul found a kinship with Timothy, and that philo love turns into agape love, a love that you would sacrifice for, for his friend. And Paul acted as Timothy's father. We can see here in um, 2 Timothy, the second verse here, Paul writes this letter to Timothy. He's in prison during this time. Rome is literally burning everything down around him, and he's in this prison, and he writes this letter to Timothy. To Timothy, my dearest son, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience as night and day, and I constantly remember you in my prayers. 
Paul is telling Timothy that he is thanking God for what he has done for him through Timothy. I constantly remember you in my prayers. My life is better for knowing you, Timothy. And I'm in joy to be able to talk to you. He goes on to say in verse 4, Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your uh, mother Eunice. And I am persuaded... Now lives in you, or excuse me, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flames the gift of God, which is in you through laying on of hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. This is a father talking to his son. This is a friend talking to his deep friend through this. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the choices you made. Keep that integrity going. I'm encouraging you to stay strong, my son, through all of this. Keep God at the center of your life. Verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul is reminding Timothy to be proud of who he is in Christ. Stay the course, Timothy. And in verse 11, as of this gospel, I was appointed as a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know who I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good, deposit that which was entrusted to you, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Pass on this very friendship, this is what he's telling him in, in a nutshell, pass on this very friendship you have with me to others. Keep this going, Timothy. Don't let this die with us. These people that you are training right now to go teach this word, entrust in them these powers, these abilities, this love of God, so that they can go out and echo these same relationships that we are having here. And most importantly, in all of this, Timothy, keep God first. No relationship, no matter how strong, no matter how long it's been, no matter how much you've gone through, no matter how deep it is, can truly reach its full potential without God in the middle of it. That's it. Could you imagine as a believer having a friend that you've grown up from childhood, that you've been through thick and thin, that you've been through the wars of life with, that you've fought battles of relationships and, and uh, jobs and family and everything else with, and you get to that last day and you had to watch them walk down one road while you walk down the other. What a life wasted. What a friendship wasted. This is what Paul is telling Timothy right now. Don't waste this. Entrust this into others. Bring God into the lives of everyone around you. That is the foundation of friendship. Right there. Everything else, the investment, the loyalty, the love has to stack up on top of God there. Because if you pull that out, the whole thing crumbles. 
So there's a formula right there. That's your formula for a meaningful relationship. Now, wait a second, Ryan. There's a lot of stuff you missed. Yes, there is. I could have made this lesson a lot longer. There's patience. There's kindness. There's long-suffering, which all comes in a nutshell somewhere in those. But those have to be there. Forgiveness? Ain't no friendship without forgiveness. That's for sure. But all of that is derived from these other four areas. Because if you have those, you will have the others. If that friendship is based on God and loyalty and investment, the forgiveness and patience are going to come along with it. The importance of friendship is not, a, not an American concept. It's not a biblical concept. It, it started in the Bible, but it's, it's, it's transcendent of time. Friendship has become strong in every single aspect of culture that has ever existed from the time that God created this world. It has been a tenet of life itself to exist. And rabbinic texts and old Jewish studies on there, they admonish above all else to find themselves a faithful companion or friend to steer through life. I like that because you have to do a lot of steering through life. I'm going to take something from Muslims who have different beliefs than us completely, but are one of the biggest faiths in the world. In Muslim text, friendship is referred to as someone whose appearance reminds you of God, whose speech increases your knowledge, and whose actions remind you of the hereafter. May not share the same beliefs, that's for sure, but I like that. Because isn't that exactly what we just read in the Bible with everybody else? A friend who reminds me of the hereafter. Someone smart that's going to give me good advice because they're looking out for me. And someone who reminds me of the appearance of God. That's a friend. Well, let's go back to the first thing, but I don't want friends. Friends are too much trouble. Okay. <laughs> it ain't going to be easy. That's for sure. It ain't going to be easy. Do you think it was easy for Jonathan to defy his father? and risk death? Do you think it was easy to stay two days in another area while your friend is dying just so you could come back and raise him up to the glory of God? Do you think it's easy to push off your entire life, your hopes and dreams that you've had from the time you were a child to follow your mother-in-law to make sure her happiness comes first? And do you think it's easy to be sitting in a jail cell but putting your friend and their future first in your writings? It ain't going to be easy, but God guarantees it's going to be worth it. He guarantees it. The wisest man of all time, I like that Matt says, outside of Jesus, <laughs> Solomon. He has some words for you if you don't want friends. Proverbs 18.1, an unfriendly person pursues selfish ends, and against all sound judgment starts quarrels. That's it. You don't want to be a friend of someone, you're selfish. Because friendship does require something of you. It does require some sacrifice of your own wants and needs to make sure that you're helping somebody out. And if it's a good friendship, they're doing the same to you. I like this commentary on this verse. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. To cut oneself off from family, friends, and community is often to express a selfish desire. It shows an unwillingness to make the small and sometimes large sacrifices 
to get along with others. That's exactly what that verse means. But then he offers some advice in verse 24. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A friend who sticks closer than a blood brother. Blood is thicker than water. The blood of Jesus is thicker than water. That is for sure. Friendships that are based in that love and in the blood of Christ will last longer than those who are not. If they're cultivated properly. So, are friends important? Yep. Yeah. Are they important because they help you feel better? Yep. Yeah. Are they important because they have people you can lean on to in life's hardest times? Yep. Yeah. Do they show health benefits from having them? Yep. Yeah. Even as much as 22% a longer life. Are they going to be challenging? Yep. Are they important? Yep. Are they established by God? Yes. It is not good for man to separate themselves from everyone else. We need to be there for each other. We need to have this friendship in our life. It's not a luxury. It's something that God wants for us and has established throughout his scripture from day one. So what I'm asking for you right now is to think about your friends. Do you have a lot of friends? Great. Do you have at least three you can really count on? Do you have three people you could pick up that phone and call in a case of an emergency that would be there tripping over themselves to get to you? Great. I've heard the statistics. 50% of people say they have more than five friends and 10% say they have three good ones and 2% say they have one. The statistics. Do you have a godly friend that will be there when your spiritual life crashes? When you start to turn against God himself, that will recognize your stumbling and reach with both arms out and pick you up and stand you up and say, I'm going to stay here with you until God comes down and reaches us both. I'm going to hold you up in the midst of this time when you're ready to fall. Do you have that friend? How about this question? Are you that friend? Do you have people in your life at the drop of a hat that you would rush to their house to pray for them, read to them, hold them up? Make sure that they're accountable for God. Because if you do, you're fulfilling what God wants in this life. That's friends. Now, I'm told I have the sarcasm of Chandler. <laughs> but I'm not the world's biggest friends fan. I love, friends is great. My wife is friends fan number one. So if you ever need any information, I think I saw every episode three times before I met my wife. And I've seen them 13 times now. <laughs> so, yes. So if you need any history or any quotes or anything, she's the one to go to. So, But I am a Lord of the Rings fan. And if you remember, in Lord of the Rings, it wasn't about Frodo. Who was the real hero of that movie? It was his friend, Samwise. His friend that went with him for no other reason than he was his friend. On the toughest, most dangerous mission. Some of you were like, I've never read the book, never seen the movie. That's okay. <laughs> It's about two friends trying to complete a task in a very dangerous place. But throughout the book, Sam says, you sleep, I'll watch. You eat, I'll starve. You go, I'll make sure we're safe. If something comes after you, I'll jump in the way and fight it. All the way till the very end. 
And society were like, oh, look at Frodo. What a brave guy. Nope, look at the book. It was his friend that was the hero. He's the one that saved it all. And he did it for four basic reasons. Because he loved his friend. He was loyal to him. He invested his time and believed in something greater than himself. Yeah. Literature is literature. J.R.R. Tolkien was a believer in God. So if you want to put that wrap around Lord of the Rings, you can. But the truth is, when we sacrifice what we want from those around us, God pays us back through that quality friendship. If you are in a part of your life where you have lost a friendship because something has happened, this is the time. This is the time to make amends. This is the time to pick up the phone. This is the time to drop to your knees in prayer. This is the time to reach out to somebody that you may have hurt and say, I'm sorry. I was not loyal to you. God was not in my heart at that moment, but he is right now. I'm sorry. Or to reach out to that friend who did something to you and say, I forgive you. This has been weighing on me for so long, but you know what? God is good and I forgive you. Let's see if we can start this up again. Because I'm going to be there with you. Why do we wait for holidays? Friendship lasts all year long. And this is the moment to reach out and do that. If you ever feel a time in your life, I'm going to leave you with this last point, where you don't have friends. You've really put yourself out there. You've really tried to make friends. You've really tried to find people that you can find a common goal with, that you can share the spirit of Christ with, and nothing happens. Please remember this one thing. You have never been alone a day in your life. Christ has been with you the entire time. One who is closer than a brother. He has never, ever stopped believing in you. He has never dropped your hand and said, I don't want this anymore. He has never pushed you away and said, you're not my friend. He has been sitting there at that table with you your entire life eating watching you suffer through all the pains and anguish, watching you celebrate the triumphs and love, he has been with you. So the question is, have you been there for him? There's an old song I used to sing with uh, as a kid, and I wanted just to put these up. I would sing it at our church, and it's an old hymn, I'll Be a Friend of Jesus. Probably most of you know this one. Lyrics are very simple. They tried my Lord and Master with no one to defend. Within the halls of Pilate, he stood without a friend. So I'll be the friend to Jesus. My life for him I'll spend. I'll be a friend to Jesus until my years shall end. The second verse, the world may turn against him, but I'm going to love him till the end. And while on earth I'm living, my Lord shall have a friend. I'll do what he may bid me. I'll go where he may send. I'll try each flying moment to prove I'm his friend. To all who need a savior, my friend, I'll recommend, because he brought salvation, and that's why I am his friend. You've never been without a friend in your entire life. In your darkest moments, the best friend you can possibly have is right there with you. But it doesn't help to have four or five more. <laughs> it doesn't hurt, I should say. To have four or five more that can come rally around you and pick you up and bring you along. So this week, I always give a challenge at the end of my thing. For this week, today, an hour from now, 
maybe a month from now when it happens, look for an opportunity to find somebody that you've never friended before. Look for an opportunity to find somebody that you're like, you know what, they might be needing a friend. Look for the opportunity to stick your hand out and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, how are you? And then maybe in a month from now, they might be sitting right here with you. And that's a friend through Jesus.